Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Is it only the birds who are singing here, or is it also the air conditioning units? Have those mundane and functional sounds of everyday city life become something more? Something musical? You're listening to a clip taken from a sound installation designed for and realised in a small laneway in Melbourne, Australia, by the sound artist and urban design researcher Jordan Lacey. In Lacey's words, it represents a sonic rupture. And Sonic Rupture, a practice-led approach to urban soundscape design, is a title of Lacey's new book, published by Bloomsbury in 2016. This is New Books in Sound Studies, a collaboration between the New Books Network and the Centre for Media, Data and Society at Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. And we are your hosts... Ian Cook and Dumi Holdish, and we're really happy to be joined by Jordan to talk about his new book. Jordan is a postdoctoral research fellow at the School of Architecture and Design at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Jordan to New Books in Sound Studies. Let's dive straight in. Could you tell us what is a sonic rupture and why do we want to have them in our cities? Thanks, Ian. The sonic rupture concept really builds off a, a comment made by Felix Watari in The Three Ecologies, where he talks about the A-signifying rupture. So the concept is derived from my thinking of the sounds of the city as a system of signifiers, and those signifiers determine certain everyday behaviours in the sense that sounds can be considered to be fixed in the city in terms of uh, the quality of sound and the repetition of that sound on a daily basis. So if we think about the sounds of the city as being fixed and therefore expressing a certain type of functional control of everyday behaviour, the idea of the rupture is to create a small space or zone or area that is A-signifying. That is, uh, the sounds that exist in that space signify nothing. So the idea of the rupture is to uh, remove or take away or disperse controlling signifiers to create a space for in um, experiential diversity or new encounter or creative expression or uh, undefined perceptual engagement, if you like. So it's it's really uh, focused on the perception of the listener in the city as something that uh, differs from typical everyday perception and experience. Mm -hmm. 
And, and why, why do we want them? In, why would we want a, a sonic rupture in our city? Well, I guess there's, there's, there's no reason to assume that everyone would want a sonic rupture in a city. It mm-hmm. definitely has a certain political intention. If you take this sort of axiomatic idea that I'm putting forward, which is, which is to say that there might be some sort of relationship between uh, the reduction of possible listening experiences that seem to go hand in hand with the uh, contemporary global city, that is, sounds are reduced to the sounds of air conditioners or the sounds of transport or the sounds of emergency signals, et cetera, et cetera. What sort of uh, effects or impacts does that have on the human being who is constantly immersed within those type of sounds? So if you take the premise like I do, that that reduces human experience to something quite uh, uh, narrow or something that's quite diminished compared to what we could possibly experience, then the rupture becomes desirable as it seeks to create environments that can expand the range of possible experiences, which therefore um, expands our own uh, sense of self or the possible relationships we can have with the world around us. Of course, if your view is that reducing human experiences and uh, having a functionalized populace is desirable, then you probably wouldn't want a rupture. Hmm. Well, that's super interesting, Jordan. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what led you to write this book and what is your background? Just uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself. I uh, am relatively new to sound studies. I came across it in 2010 when I uh, was uh, doing a music course here at RMIT University. And I came across Soundscape Studies. It was an elective taught in the sound studios where I'm presently based, taught by Lawrence Harvey, who became my PhD supervisor. And it was quite a moment for me coming across Soundscape Studies or really acoustic ecology, uh, which was the approach uh, preferred by, uh, by the studios. Because uh, it brought together three passions in my life, which is music, um, environmentalism, and education. Um, I was, I've been a musician, self-taught musician since I was a teenager. Uh, I studied environmental sciences in the early 90s and worked as a secondary school teacher for about 15 years before I went back into the university system. And it was pretty amazing to, to come across something that uh, seemed to hold these three um, disciplinary approaches, if you like. So that's how I discovered it and immediately thought, this is what I want to do. So uh, I took my work as a musician into the public art realm as part of my PhD, where I studied uh, and, and you know executed a variety of different public artworks and was really started to quickly think about that in relationship to the people who are experiencing those works. And uh, and it's that research that culminated in the book and the Sonic Rupture concept. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thanks so much. As I was just telling you before we started recording, I, I, I really enjoyed the book. I mean, it's a, it's a book that has four chapters and, and, and a couple of um, shorter 
of um, musings as well. And then in the beginning of the book, you you lay out really this sort of very strong theoretical and, and uh, analytical apparatus that, that drives the sonic rupture model. But I think one of the really unique and interesting things about your book is that you talk in detail about the process of how you conceive and realize sound installations, especially in, in chapter three. And this and this shows how the how your practice really informed your theoretical and analytical concerns. And you talk through the process in a number of stages that lead to your model. And these stages relate to five approaches to urban soundscape design that you call subtraction, addition, transformation, passion, and disclosure. So I think a really great way to explore your model would maybe be to talk through these different approaches one by one. And we can play samples from the website which accompanies your book. We'll put a link to this website um, in the blog that accompanies this post. And then, uh, and then we can talk about each one. Okay, so let's start with the first sound, which is subtraction. And this is the first sample, which is audio sample four, and it's called shutdown. Okay, so what do we hear here? So that was a um, project I completed with a soundscape studies class. I was actually teaching uh, in 2012. I'm, I'm actually just writing a paper about that now for the Journal of Sonic Studies uh, to submitted the final draft today. So it's it's rich in my mind. Uh, there's a, a uh, an exhaust stack in the middle of a very public area here on RMIT University and it emits a loud uh, exhaust sound, as you can hear, that is also amplified by a metal awning above the uh, exhaust outlet. And you could think of it as, a, as, a, as an appalling example of acoustic design, or really uh, at a lack of awareness of how important the impact of sound is on our everyday uh, experiences. So I organized with my students to shut down the exhaust fan outlet and that's what you can hear about halfway through that sample what you can also hear in that sample how is immediately human voice springs forward and it was a really great example of uh, acoustic ecology's lo-fi hi-fi concept which gets uh, criticized in the sound studies world in, including my book but that's actually a great illustration of something barry truax uh, talks about when he when he uh, talks about the alienation that become that can be caused by lo-fi soundscapes and um, he uses this uh, idea of a visual metaphor that those sort of loud noises are a bit like fog when you're in fog you can't see very well but when the fog lifts you can see very well very similar in this situation when the exhaust outlets roaring away you can't hear any of the voices or the other sounds they're all masked but when it goes suddenly it's activated as social space. People are able to talk clearly. You suddenly see people standing further apart because they don't have to get right up close to each other. So it was a great example of how immediately uh, changing the soundscape of a space can change social behavior. And I think, in fact, it's a, it's a great uh, example of the truth in what uh, acoustic ecologists 
were saying about the lo-fi, hi-fi distinction, but it also marks the departure point for me where I had to start looking for new approaches. Mm-hmm. And uh, now this brings us on to the next uh, sample, audio sample 10, which is the air conditioning continued. So uh, as the as the elements name addition uh, might give away, you're you're adding something. So you can tell us what what did you do here and what did you add? Where did you add it? The first thing to uh, to say, listening back to that, is I always marvel how unbothered the bird seems by uh, my intervention. <laughs> Sing, sings away as normal. Uh, what I realised after after subtraction that. Uh, as, as important as that approach is, it's extremely difficult to remove noise. I went through uh, quite an intensive three-month process to organise with the relevant authorities to switch that off for 30 seconds, and it's never been off since. <laughs> and uh, exploring Melbourne so deeply, um, it just occurred to me that there is noise wherever I go. Uh, you can't escape it. So that's when I start thinking, well, there, there's a limitation here in the acoustic ecology approach for me as an urban soundscape designer, because I don't have a language uh, with which I can actually in, in, interrelate with these noises beyond saying, these noises are awful, they're having a bad impact, I want them to go away. That simply couldn't happen. I had to find a way to interrelate with these noises. So my first um, attempt was that work, which is where I installed for air conditioners in a laneway uh, that had concealed speakers that were, lo and behold, playing air conditioning noises. Uh, those air conditioning noises were collected on site and uh, transformed in the studio and played back in the site. So it was uh, a matter of adding those sounds to try and create uh, a new impression or a new experience of encountering air conditioning noises. It pointed towards uh, transformation, which I think was more successful in my next work that we'll talk about. But in that case, it marks the departure point from me where I had to start learning ways to develop an affirmative, positive, creative relationship with my city that in, that necess- 
necessitates me engaging with the immediate site-specific environment rather than uh, negatively admonishing it and wishing it wasn't there and wanting to run away to nature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I should also add at this point, what's really nice about this chapter is that you talk through in such precise detail. I mean, right down to the software that you use to, and with photographs of and screenshots and, and everything as you go along. So even for those of us who might not have the same sort of technical training or expertise that, that you have, you can actually really follow the process. But let's move on to uh, the next the next step, which is transformation. And let's listen to audio sample 29, which is from a, from a different uh, project, and it's called Train Takeoff. So what can we hear here? So the uh, Liquid Architecture Sound Art Festival, which is a, a wonderful festival we have here in Australia, uh, invited me to uh, do a work in a very unusual location. It's a, a cavernous concrete cuboid beneath uh, at one of our central stations, Flinders Street Station. And uh, either side of this uh cavernous concrete cuboid uh, uh, platforms uh, with suburban trains arriving and departing. And the concrete walls are very thin, so you can hear, when you're inside this space, you can hear all of these sounds pouring in. Uh, The train sounds, the announcement sounds, uh, people talking on the platforms, everything you can imagine. So when the curators of the festival went down to this space, uh, originally I believe they were looking at it as a site for Francisco Lopez to do a performance. And I thought, how on earth will he do a performance in here? It's just so noisy. So they found a more suitable location uh, for Francisco Lopez. And then Philip Samartis, who was curating the work, contacted me on the basis of my air conditioning works. This is interesting because uh, Philip Samartis uh, is a uh, as associate professor in, in sound art and I guess uh, he would champion a, a more noise-based approach. Perhaps I should be careful, he may hear that and not agree, but that's how I perceived it at the time, which is different, I guess, to the acoustic ecology approach that I had uh, learnt more so here in the studios. So I was quite lucky that I was able to Uh, be um, exposed to a range of philosophical approaches in in sound studies. That's a bit of an aside. So when I went uh, into this space, I set about recording all of the sounds I was hearing in the cabin. And then I did a series of 14, uh, 15-minute performances where audiences would come down into this quite surreal space 
and I would purposely uh, trigger sounds in relationship to what uh, I was hearing on the other side of the concrete walls as the trains came in and out. And, and as uh, I went through day after day, because I spent about a month in this strange environment, it became very difficult to tell what were the noises and what were the uh, sound designs. I think a train station is a great example of what I would refer to as a functionalist imperative in the book. That is the imperative to be functional. Train stations are highly functional, as we want them to be, if we want the trains to, to run on time. Uh, but they're also highly repetitive environments. They're not places that you would expect to have diverse experience. So it was a great way to explore um, new imaginative ways of engaging with those everyday experiences through blending the design sounds with the real sounds. And I think in the book I talk about it as a type of a of a dreaming because it, it did feel like falling into a dreamlike state. And there were lots of wonderful moments like when I'd blast my train horns and the train driver would blast their train horn <laughs> in response. And so there was all those kind of interruptions to everyday activities as well. This was not so much a, a public art installation as a live performance using surrounding urban sounds, but it did point the way to me, for me, which I think is the most important uh, aspect of a public art installation, is that it's able to respond to site-specific conditions by transforming uh, those existing sounds to turn them into something else. And I think that's where the A-signifying rupture really comes forth, uh, this idea of the sound as signifier losing its signification and becoming something else, which might be uh, an imaginative or recreative, creative response for the listener. How could we populate the city with experiences like that? That's when that uh, insight was revealed and it, it marks a, uh, an evolution of the addition uh, approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I mean, yeah, when I was reading your book and sometimes I was reading part of it on public transport. And then once you start to think about these these processes, what we've gone through so far, you know, um, subtraction, addition and then, and then transformation, then you start to think about, uh-huh, what, what, I, what would I do with this sound? What would I do with this sound when you're just when you're just moving around the city? So it's a really it's a really great way of changing your orientation as well to the to the city that you're in. Let's move on now to the to the next uh, element, which is called passion. And this is from a different project. And this is audio sample 32, a triggered sequence from Intimate Footsteps. Yeah. 
merging. This was also a very new listening experience to me because when I listened to these sounds before, I listened to them at home alone on a computer and then now I'm facing a dummy and listening to it at the same time. <laughs> it certainly changed the way that I heard. So this is the, this is the, the stage, uh, the element passion. What, what were we listening to? This was uh, an installation for the Design Hub in Melbourne and uh, it involved uh, an interactive component, which is a chair that you could sit down in, and there were some uh, pressure pads at the end of the chair that were designed by in, an industrial designer, Frank Feltham, who I work with. And as you squeeze the chair, uh, the, the chair was placed in the middle of a very long ramp, and then two footsteps would come at you from either direction, and then when they reached you, if you squeezed harder, they started kissing and talking and the harder you squeezed it the more passionate they became and then if you let go they they ran off again so originally the idea was uh really to explore this notion of transformation which had come up uh in the uh, train work uh with footsteps because footsteps are another uh, repetitive everyday sound that we might be used to hearing in the city although only really high heels because soft-soled shoes uh, in some ways eliminate our presence as much as noise sources might eliminate our voices. Uh, but what I wanted to do in this space, because the footsteps are very present as people move through, I wanted to find a way if the, the footsteps could create these similar sort of transformative experiences. And you can hear it in that sequence. There, there is a mixture of um, foley footsteps in the installation and real footsteps of people walking past, so which you probably can't tell the, the difference in, in the context of listening. Uh, the, but then really when we came to the chair and the idea of, uh, these two footsteps coming together or what might two people do that come together in the middle of the city that you mightn't often see, or you don't see enough, that's embracing and kissing <laughs> and talking to each other. And you may see it more in some cities than others. Uh, but, uh, so it was really playing, playing with that idea. And then that's where the, the notion of the passion approach came. How do you bring passion uh, back into cities that might be uh, alienated or isolating or disconnected? This sort of fanciful notion of two, two strangers just finding each other and, and embracing each other in, in a passionate moment. Uh, I'm just um, wondering what's your relationship with these pieces according to the to your own listening experience because in in I think the first two cases you're surrounded by students and you're doing something with them and then you have this nice story about interacting with um, 
um, with other trains and here with a larger public in, in your last piece in the audio sample 32. So I'm just wondering what's your, how do you experience these, uh, these installations yourself? And do, does this experience change according to the listening setting? That's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, the first one I was surrounded by students. The second one uh, w w was very much alone, although I did work with uh, another uh, sound designer on that, uh, Jeffrey Hannum, who designed the software. And the third one, yes, I was essentially alone <laughs> in this strange space for a month. And then, and then in the fourth one, um, surrounded by collaborators and the public, when I when I listen back, that one still puts a smile on my face. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Passion, you mean? Uh, the pa yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, the sounds of the kisses are very convincing because they are, in fact, real kisses. Um, I guess there's a maybe more of a. I'd hesitate to use a, a coldness, but uh, given that the material of the earlier ones is dealing only with noises, uh, there's a, there's a kind of a, a strangeness, strangeness to them, I guess, because in a way they're drawing your attention to something we probably typically push to the background. They're not only drawing our attention, they're recreating our experience of them. I mean, I suppose for me personally, um, the experience of listening back to most of these is so unlike the experience of being in uh, the original installation. And this is actually a big problem for any site-specific installation artist. You can never truly recreate uh, the experience the way that a composer could a piece of work in a uh, concert hall, for instance, uh, or a sculptor could one of their works in a gallery. It only works in that moment, and the sort of documentation that we're listening to is just um, a diminished representation of, of the actual experience. So for me, it's like um, a reminder of, of a more poignant moment, I guess. Yeah, I guess listening is a very environmental experience in the end. <laughs> And it's, it's really interesting. Uh, it's, sorry. It, well, it, I mean, it is uh, when you're working in public environments. I mean, of course, when you're working with media, uh, it, it can be an experience you have anywhere, like listening back to this um, this interview, for instance. Mm -hmm. I just want to follow up on this um, site-specific um, nature of your work. There's a, there's a wonderful story in, in terms of the... the um, the, the project that you did with the air conditioning units when uh, some graffiti artists um, possibly uh, interacted uh, with your sound designers. Only could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks for picking up on that because that was the most exciting moment for me in the whole research process. Uh, we have a wonderful graffiti culture here in Melbourne, very creative and uh, up there with the best in the world. And this particular laneway just happened to be a, a, a favoured spot for graffiti artists. And it was quite a coincidence that when the installation started the day before the City of Melbourne uh, executed their anti-graffiti policy, which uh, only is uh, focused on certain walls because the opposite wall where I was was protected because there was some historically significant graffiti but the other wall wasn't significant, so what they would do is come and paint it grey. And it, I don't know 
it's just coincidence that occurred at that time, but this wall got painted grey three or four times while the uh, installation was running. And, of course, painting a wall grey is just an invitation for a graffiti artist to come and produce a new work. So while the work was playing, there was graffiti forms coming up that were clearly sonic in nature. And being someone who enjoys looking at graffiti, I could see there was something different. And in the book, you can see certain graffiti forms, such as four overlapping circles, which is a great sonic representation of four speakers, which is what the work consisted of. Or there was the uh, somebody's head, but with their ear facing out, listening, um, instead of looking out, like a lot of graffiti does. And there was sort of these gestural sequences on the ground, because something that doesn't come through uh, in those recordings is uh, the fact that those sounds are moving across the four speakers. They're, they're spatialized. So there was these graffiti lines coming off the wall and onto the ground and all these interesting shapes. Um, and I just thought it's, it feels to me like this graffiti is responding to the sound. And lo and behold, this very sharp-looking dude came up to me one day and while I was doing some recordings and said, are you the artist? And I said, I am. And he said, oh, yeah, my mates have been coming down uh, – painting to this i said really he said yeah for 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 sure so that was my verification uh uh can't prove that to the world because <laughs> i didn't <laughs> record the conversation but it certainly happened and what really struck me was how the city is in fact a highly creative ecology and if you produce these ruptures that open experience when people enter that rupture point they're given uh, you know, the opportunity or perhaps the creative compulsion to produce their own creative responses to that effective environment. That's certainly the uh, aim of a rupture. And so it was extremely exciting for me uh, to see these graffiti artists responding uh, to the new uh, sonic environment uh, in such a uh, interrelated way. Okay, and now, um, thanks a lot. And now, now let's go to the last stage of your model, Disclosure. And we're going to listen to Hallway, Below Studio, Lots of Dreams Extended. And I sometimes walk around making sure I fall asleep. But why do you have to sleep all the time at night? Okay, so one of the things that we that we learn about you in the book is that you declare, in fact, that you do not believe in ghosts. Um, but let's uh, so let's with this last uh, sample that we just listened to in mind, can you tell us what were what were we listening to here? 
So uh, a friend of mine, Kashi Lynch, is a sculptor. Okay, let's stop and, that again. Uh, I think it's bit. probably fair to say she does believe in ghosts. And uh, she was uh, commissioned to do a work at the Abbotsford Convent, which was a nunnery here in Melbourne for many, many years. Uh, and now it's a, an artist-run uh, studio. And uh, Kashi had decided to invite two mediums to walk with her through the convent and to communicate with the uh, the spirits or the or the energetics of this building and Kashir invited me to come along and record the conversations that they had and then to turn those conversations into uh, short sound segments that people could listen to through headphones as they walked the same path uh, or visited sites of significance as determined by the mediums uh, they could listen to these to these sound files the uh, the notion of disclosure came through for me because what i loved about this idea of course is that the mediums were claiming to disclose the stories of lingering uh, spirits and presences that otherwise couldn't be perceived uh, but also while this was happening, I was listening to the beautiful creaks of the old wooden stairs as we walked up and down them or the squeaks of the old heavy doors as they moved on their hinges and, and slammed behind us. And they just created such a, a, a beautiful ambience. And, and then it occurred to me that uh, by uh, interacting with the environment and paying special attention to it, we were disclosing uh, sounds that would otherwise be hidden uh, from our perception. So I think I describe this particular approach, as I do passion, uh, as a as a bifurcation in terms of the main arc of research, which revealed subtraction, addition, uh, transformation. But it seemed to me uh, a significant uh, a significant enough approach to include in the model. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, just to um, remind our listeners, the, the five approaches to urban soundscape design that you propose in your model are subtraction, addition, transformation, passion, and disclosure. And as a way of closing our discussion on your book, could you please tell us how these different approaches interact in your sonic rupture model and what the implications of this model are for, for urban soundscape design? I think the... The most important thing to say here is that the model itself, which looks quite geometric and uh, and diamond-shaped in the book, uh, which doesn't necessarily have an intention of in and of itself except to say that's the limit of my graphic design capabilities, the core of this um, model is relationships. It's about the artist uh, forming a relationship with a site uh, such that the site were like a living thing. So that relationship is something that's uh, dialogical, you know, it goes backwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. So it's about the artist uh, immersing themselves within a site, learning from the site, teaching the site, and then extracting some type of uh, meaning or or creative intention that would then uh, augment that site or rupture that site. So the way that the five approaches relate is that 
they are all connected by this notion of the relationship, the idea of the the influence of the environment on the artist, and then the uh, influence of the artist's intentions on the environment, and then how they come together to form this rupture point. How an approach might be taken is um, completely up to the artist and the relationship they form. It could be one of the five approaches put forward in the model, or it could be something completely different. It is possible that someone could study this model and say, we want to um, put this particular approach in action in this particular space. For example, that could be an urban soundscape design um, approach to its use. So the uh, artistic approach of this model is to say this is about relationships and through that relationship the appropriate approach will reveal itself but as an actual tool for urban soundscape design it could put uh, in front of the designer or the planner a suite of potential approaches that could be uh, applied in some curated networked sense across the city to ensure that there is uh, a range of experiences that the urban dweller can uh, can encounter. I, I think that they. Uh, I think that that's the best way I can answer that question. It's a very good way to answer the the question. So uh, I don't know, Ian, if you don't have anything to add, uh, Jordan. Then finally, uh, now that the book is out, can you tell us a bit about your your current and future projects? Well, I just finished writing two articles for the Conversation. Are you aware of the Conversation? Nope. It's a, it's a wonderful forum uh, for academics to present their research in a in a journalistic style to everyday public, and uh, so I'd encourage the listener to uh, go onto a search engine and if you put in the conversation and Jordan Lacey, an article will come up that's explaining precisely what my present research projects are. Uh, but what I'm trying to do is something that I propose in the conclusion of the book. And it's a challenge uh, to sound artists like myself uh, to start thinking about ways that we can engage and interface with industry. And by industry, I mean government, I mean uh, councils, um, which is government, of course. Uh, I mean corporations. Uh, how can we engage with them to find ways that we might be able to introduce the sonic rupture uh, in their uh, everyday infrastructure projects. Of course, I don't necessarily call it a rupture when I approach them because it sounds like something <laughs> quite violent or like a very unfortunate uh, health outcome. Uh, I don't really want to go into the, the depths of Guattari's A signifying rupture with them, at least <laughs> as I understand it, which isn't to say they wouldn't be interested, uh, but they are very busy people. So I'm presently working with a motorway infrastructure company uh, looking at the ways that we can transform noises uh, after they've been attenuated by noise walls. And uh, we've been working with ethnographers, including uh, Sarah Pink and uh, Shanti Somatayo, to bring local community members down to these parklands or into backyards to see if they're more uh, habitable spaces once these noise transformations have been applied to otherwise very uninviting sound environments uh, of motorway noise. That's one project I'm working on. 
Second project I'm working on is I've been commissioned by uh, a council, which is like a local government authority here in Melbourne with a group of researchers to try and create uh, a sound mark or a point of meaningful sonic identity. And we've taken a, a very experimental approach with this that I could talk about for a very, very long time. So I'd think, how can I summarize this very quickly? But essentially, we uh, worked with the community to identify what for them were the meaningful sounds of their community. We then commissioned sound artists to conduct some field recordings to capture those sounds. And I think we ended up with a total of 142 different field recordings, uh, which can play back at random within this specifically designed uh, location in the plaza of a community centre. The location itself contains what's called a sensing stone. This is actually a piece of basalt with aluminium strips carved within it that are interactive. So as you touch these aluminium strips, it will play back these, um, these uh, field recordings in specific ways. And it will also, uh, and this is very much the disclosure approach, there are two metal plates on the ground that you stand on with transducers beneath them and as you touch the stone these will vibrate and hum and send uh, uh, specific uh, vibrations through your body as you're hearing these field recordings. So the the first project I see very much is the application of the transformation approach and the second project I see is the application of the uh, the addition and the disclosure approaches. So, mm -hmm. so I did feel that if I was going to uh, propose this model in my book, uh, I better demonstrate how it can work as well. <laughs> yeah, and they, they both sound like absolutely fascinating projects. Uh, we look forward to hearing more about those um, in the future. Um, there's not much more for us to do today, apart from to to thank you a lot for for coming on new books and sound studies i uh, i know we both really really enjoyed your book i read it first and then gave it to dummy and as i was coming to the office every day i was like oh did you read that bit yet did you read that bit yet so it was like uh, we've been discussing this book uh, on and off for uh, about three weeks so it's really been really great to have you on uh, so yeah thanks again and thanks a lot for the chance to talk about your wonderful book yeah, thanks so much Thank i really you, appreciate Jeremy. the talk Thanks for listening to New Books in Sound Studies. We've been your hosts, Dumi Holdish and Ian Cook. And today we've been talking about Sonic Rupture by Jordan Lacey. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we have, and we hope you'll listen again next time. Ta-ra!